Hi, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the Frankenstein AI dinner party challenge so far. We wanted to drop this brief conversation about conversational design as you all are thinking about creating prompts for your own dinner parties this weekend. My name is Romy Neme, and my background is in strategy and communications design. So five years ago, I launched and grew a research and strategy practice within an agency environment. And we spent a lot of our time really thinking about how we could create the right conditions to have candid and honest conversations with people, really vibrant kinds of conversations that you wouldn't normally have every day. And we tended to ask the questions sideways with philosophical riddles that really didn't have a right or wrong answer to get underneath people's natural defenses when discussing meaty topics, because those serious topics that we wanted to talk about are the ones where people's defenses go right up and they essentially are accompanied by a set of beliefs that people have spent a lifetime cultivating, so they tend to be protective about them. And I'm currently on a sabbatical researching and writing about imagination. I'm fascinated with how we can induce imagination and use it as a tool for cracking open new pathways for having conversations with ourselves, each other, and ultimately try to change our disposition towards different societal issues that are hard to tackle head on. So I wanted to start with what is conversational design and aren't conversations just things that we're naturally good at? So I'll give you an example of my own failure in hosting a dinner party called Big Talk. That's for people in my industry. So my co-host and I were going over how much we should design it and the perils of over-designing a conversation and under-designing it. So we mulled over implementing two little rules that we picked up from an article about the end of small talk. And those rules were essentially not letting people show up late and creating a rule whereby guests could not talk about the weather or what they do. And it turns out actually that the question of what do you do is a highly cultural one. Um, So if you try asking it in a different country, people will look at you almost immediately know that you're American because that's not the way that people introduce people to each other in different countries. Um, So by not implementing these two rules, guess what happened? People showed up late. And then when they did show up, they immediately defaulted to talking about the weather and, of course, asked people what they do. And that probably, you know, chipped away at 45 minutes of our dinner, just, you know, all of that small talk and and sort of talk about nothing before we eventually got to talking about the serious things and the important things to us that we'd gotten together to talk about in the first place. Um, So think about you know, a really bad conversation that you've had recently? And what were the characteristics of it? And then think of a good conversation or even a really memorable one and what made it what it was. Um, So I hope to have convinced you of the premise that having a great conversation is an art. And I like to think of the art of having a great conversation as the ability to create new departure points and new outcomes. Um, Alison Parrish, who is a poet and programmer in New York, actually looks at words as a design material, not unlike what a block of marble is to a, a sculptor before they chisel it into a specific shape. So words have texture, and there's an infinite number of ways to communicate or to enable the communication of the same thing, some more beautiful and effective than others. 
the second thing I wanted to talk about is what makes conversations human? So this question is really apropos as we consider our relationship and responsibility towards AI. There's this really great book by Brian Christian that's called The Most Human Human, What Talking with Computers Teaches Us About What It Means to Be Alive. And it basically takes you through his preparation for the Turing test. And most of us know the Turing test as a competition where bots try to convince humans that they're human, right? And that scares the bejesus out of people because we think that bots are essentially going to eradicate us, except that Brian Christian is invited to the Turing test as a confederate. And that's a second type of competition that's held there that is usually less discussed. And that is um, the most human human prize. So can you talk to a judge and have them award you the most human conversation prize after five minutes behind a veil. Um, in it, in this book, he discusses uh, the anecdote of Deep Blue versus Gary Kasparov. And there's this really cool concept of the book in chess. And here's the passage. Fortunately, the two ends will never meet, says Kasparov, the opening and the end game of a book. And by book, he means your strategy for chess. But I think we've all, haven't we had that experience, the conversation that plays itself entirely out, the conversation where the formalities of the greeting reach all the way to meet the formalities of the closing, the conversation that at some level, as Kasparov puts it, doesn't even count because it has probably been had verbatim before. Um, So one of the things you want to think about in designing your prompts is how do you get people out of the book as quickly as possible, right? How do you get them out of that small talk, out of the talking about the weather, out of talking about what they do, and really get into the messy kind of spontaneous stuff of great conversations that can't be translated and, and can't be compressed, you know, what can't be prescribed or predicted, and that's not just a conversation of like interactive call and response, So I want to read to you here a quote from Ursula Le Guin, which describes um, face-to-face communications. Live face-to-face human communication is intersubjective. Intersubjectivity involves a great deal more than the machine-mediated type of stimulus response currently called, quote-unquote, interactive. It is not stimulus response at all, not a mechanical alternation of pre-coded sending and receiving Intersubjectivity is mutual. It is a continuous interchange between two consciousness. Instead of an alternation of roles between box A and box B, between active subject and passive object, it is a continuous intersubjectivity that goes both ways all the time. So think of a conversation that you've had with a chat bot as more of them arise, uh, whether it's with businesses or otherwise or the news. Um, And it's usually a string of branching questions and responses, right? That's very civil. It's question, response, question, response again. Um, One of the elements that Brian Christian talks about as he researches how he's going to go about winning the most human human prize at the Turing test is the concept of barging in. So I love this thing about um, the authenticity of conversation is spontaneity And Steven Pinker has this to say, listeners keep up with talkers. They do not wait for the end of a batch of speech and 
predict after a proportional delay, like a critic reviewing a book. And the lag between speaker's mouth and listener's mind is remarkably short. So what are some of the traps that you might fall into in designing conversations? I think that sometimes when we design something, we stop to think about it from the point of view of being a human and we look to really control and sort of over-engineer the thing that we're making. Um, So in this case, we're not so much creating a conversation because we can't really do that, Um, but instead think about it as creating a field of possibility with the prompts that you design. There's this great quote from Krista Tippett, the host of On Being, um, who's a master at, at conversation. If you want to really listen to what a great conversation looks like, um, I'd recommend that you check out her On Being podcast. So she says, if I've learned nothing else, I've learned this. A question is a powerful thing, a mighty use of words. Questions elicit answers in their likeness. Answers mirror the questions they rise or fall to meet. It's hard to transcend a combative question, but it's hard to resist a generous question. We all have it in us to formulate questions that invite honesty, dignity, and revelation. There's something redemptive and life-giving about asking a better question. So I would ask you, what possibilities are you trying to create with your dinner party? Um, one thing that's easy to slip into is, is writing prompts as like a battering ram of questions. And Brian Christian has this important realization while he's doing his research on what makes us human. So he says, having a sense of a person, their disposition, character, way of being in the world versus just knowing about them, where they grew up, how many siblings they have, what they majored in, where they work, are rather two different things. I got this great question in Lance's class and someone asked, have you found that there are things that people aren't willing to talk about? So there's this expression that we use in communication strategy, which is that your strategy is showing. Um, So one thing that we tend to gloss over is that there's a difference between the what and the how of what we're trying to create. So for example, how many well-meaning people want you to know about this super cool fair trade thing that's going to save save the world. And they do that by telling you about this super cool fair trade thing that's going to save the world. In other words, the way to educate people about something is usually not to teach them about that thing. So I think a, a good example of this is climate change, right? We know that there's this community of people who think that the truth will always prevail, or the scientific community that goes about you know, warning us about the importance of climate change using a series of facts and discoveries. Uh, yet climate change is one of the most polarizing things to talk about. In fact, it, the word was actually banned in Texas, right? And when you say it, a lot of people just shove cotton down their ears and say, la, la, la. Um, so I wanted to play you this passage from this TED Talk, How to Transform Apocalypse Fatigue into Action on Global Warming, where this guy essentially does what Don Draper says, right? If you don't like the conversation about something, create a new one. And because words create worlds, we actually have the ability to design new conversations about the oldest of subjects. 
So I'm just going to play you this brief passage and um, see how this sounds. It starts with reimagining climate itself as the living air. Climate isn't really about some abstract, distant climate far, far away from us. It's about this air that surrounds us. This air you can feel in this room too. The air that moves right now in your nostrils. This air is our Earth's skin. It's amazingly thin compared to the size of the Earth and the cosmos it shields us from. Far thinner than the skin of an apple compared to its diameter. It may look infinite when we look up, but the beautiful, breathable air is only like five to seven miles thin, a fragile wrapping around a massive ball. Inside this skin, we're all closely connected. The breath that you just took contained around 400,000 of the same organ atoms that Gandhi breathed during his lifetime. Inside this thin, fluctuating, unsettled film, all of life is nourished, protected, and held. It insulates and regulates temperatures in a range that is just right for water and for life as we know it. So how different is that description from anything that we have heard about climate change in the media, ever? And how does it change our disposition you know, towards each other and this issue when we start to think about it as this fragile living thing and this really interconnected world that we live in where my breath is your breath and that there's a limited amount of breath to go on. So it's why the thematic frame of Frankenstein AI, a monster made by many, is so apt for talking about AI. And it's the design principle um, that the Columbia Digital Storytelling Lab and, and Lance articulates as designing an emergent space that has a thematic frame to anchor itself and establishes an inspired common foundation for understanding. So going back to one of the difficult conversations that I've had in the last year for a project, I was studying nuclear weapons in India and Pakistan. And there's this thing called psychic numbing, which explains why the things that are most urgent to us and the ones we should be thinking about the most are actually ones that scare us the most. So we tend to create these, these elaborate psychological charades to basically get us out of thinking about them. Um, and you think, yeah, geez, how do I talk about, you know, something that's so fraught and so cultural and steeped um, with taboo and lies and all these things? Um, but some of our finest storytellers have found ways to talk about these most fraught issues in ways that are very inviting and very accessible. So you think about Dr. Seuss wrote a book that you might be familiar with called Butter Battle Book during the Cold War. And it's kind of satirical. It talks about the yooks and the zooks and how they basically both live on different sides of a wall. And the only thing that really separates these cultures and the thing they're fighting for is the way they eat their bread, right? So one of them eats the bread with the side up and the zooks basically eat it the other way around, the butter side down. And it's uh, this story that is um, for kids, but but in it con contains the story of conflict 
um, that's usually quite ridiculous when you take a step back and look at it. So instead of talking about you know, the threat of mutually assured destruction and um, something that can basically end existence as we know it, all of a sudden we approach it through this lens um, of a story that is accessible for all. So here are a couple of tools that you can use when you're designing your prompts. There's, first of all, different types of languages that you can use, right? Um, So when you think of law, law is a language that closes, whereas poetry is a language that opens up. And I I love this notion of the language of poetry um, slows us down. So you might think about what kind of language can you use to get people to really slow down and not just give you a canned response. Metaphors are one type of that language, right? Because they have form and content and they're imageful. And you can get people to really participate in the conversation through trying to figure out and analyze and really personalize a metaphor instead of talking about something head on. One method that I use um, as I'm writing about imagination is the concept of distance and perspective from a topic. So distance is great because it basically allows us to be transported away from the rigidity of the present and the hold that the way that things are now has on us. Um, So you may use questions that discuss the past, right, that elicit memories or compel people to share stories about a certain thing. And that can help establish a context for where people are coming from and maybe provide a deeper understanding that helps frame the future conversation. You can also go to the future and you can have people talk about hopes and desires and imaginings for the way things might be. So the second tool is perspective. Um, Perspective is really useful because it humanizes and clarifies. I think that there can be an over-reliance on the personal story these days, right? We tend to compress our discussions about all issues into here's Mary and here's her personal story. And we do that for a good reason, right? We do that because we think that it increases relatability. So here's a Stalin quote that explains this. The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. So because we want people to engage with something emotionally, we defer to talking about specific people. But there's something a little bit counterintuitive that came out of the complicating the narrative report a a few months ago that said that if we only stick to the level of the individual, we tend to then only assign blame for something to the individual. So in that sense, there's value in opening the aperture and also finding ways to broach the complexity of larger institutions that underlie a lot of our personal experience. So how can you bounce between the perspective, the zoomed in perspective of the personal uh, and then the zoomed out perspective of maybe the system or the institution? So you might want to check out Nikki Case's Explorable Explanations. He's an artist who experiments a lot with different forms of storytelling and is really good at toggling between these two different modalities of story and system. Um, And one personal example of how else you may be able to create an opening for a type of conversation is to think of things even outside of words. 
So you might be familiar with the New York Times 36 Questions to Fall in Love, which came out a few years ago. And it was an academic study about how you could create the conditions for love in two strangers. So it was a series of 36 questions. And then at the end, the two participants were encouraged to basically stare into each other's eyes for two full minutes without giggling and without saying anything. And I really encourage you to grab somebody and do that. It can even be you know, your partner or somebody that you know. But it, it really is difficult. And sometimes you even notice that your breathing starts to sync up with each other. But with food, you can, and your dinner party, you can create some of these rituals, right? To help ease some of that maybe tension if you have strangers coming or allow for some of that depth to open up in the conversation. Uh, that can be with types of food, uh, types of people serving each other. Um, you know, Lance and the Columbia DSL team are playing with that as well. So you might want to check out their prototype for the dinner that they're creating for ITFA. You can even design weird utensils, right? Where people have to eat from the same spoon, for example. Um, so these are just a, a variety of, of um, methods that you can use. And I'll just close on saying, you know, why are conversations more important now than ever? Well, I think that words are being used as weapons to really shroud the truth in a lot of our public spheres today rather than reveal. So you can think as of your dinner party as, you know, just one small way of designing prompts and questions and an experience that help reveal ourselves to each other and have fun doing that. All right. Well, good luck with the rest of your dinner party challenge and can't wait to see your questions and comments and stories on the Columbia DSL prototyping community forum. All right. Take care.